0: Welcome to the study of God's word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles open them. Would you to 2 Kings chapter 25, 2 Kings chapter 25 in a Bible study that I've entitled Rise Above the Temptations. You know, it's been almost, if you look at your calendar, it's been almost five years since we opened the Bible to the first chapter of 1 Samuel. When we started on this journey, and we are going through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Originally, I thought we were going to go through and just finish out 1 and 2 Chronicles. We'll get back there soon enough. But it's been just about five years. And I, this is one of the sections of the Bible when I studied it through the first time with Pastor Chuck Smith on his cassette tapes that really opened my eyes in the depth of the history of the nation of Israel and opened my eyes on how God uses us and what he wants to accomplish and and just the life of David, the life of Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, all the kings, Judah, Israel. It was such a rich study now for the very first time to study it and deliver it myself. And we find that the nation of Israel has been a life of many years of ups and downs, not unlike your life and mine. And it's worth saying again and repeating that the Old Testament is a very important part of the Bible. And I know some real popular teachers that have a lot of influence, you're hearing it more and more depending on on what, what you're listening to or what might be shown, but there's some guys now, you know, we don't need the Old Testament anymore, we don't need to study the Old Testament. You might even find people just emphasizing we're New Covenant believers, New Covenant believers. Let me just remind you, we're New Covenant believers. There is no New Covenant without the Old Covenant. There's no meaning to the new covenant. There's no understanding of who Messiah is and all the prophecies and predictions. There's no context when you open up the book of Matthew and say, well, who are these people? What is this nation? What is the significance of these genealogies? Without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't really mean anything, doesn't have significance. Now, now I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit couldn't use the book of John by itself or all the Bibles inspired by God but we need to study through the Old Testament. You need to read through the Old Testament as difficult as it might be. Of course, you're reading through the Bible right now and you're in the book of Exodus. Exodus is an easier book in the Old Testament. Wait till you get to Leviticus. That's when people start. oh, I don't know. And, and I just remind you as you're reading it, don't read so much to understand every single thing you read. When you get to something you don't understand, maybe have a notebook and jot it down and just move on. And ask a question. Look it up on blueletterbible.org. Maybe there's a question to be asked. But don't be discouraged when you're reading the Bible and you don't understand everything. There's a lot in the Bible that after almost 30 years of studying it, I don't understand. And that I wrestle with. And you know what that does? It causes me to cry out to God more. And it reminds me, as we need to be reminded from time to time, we're not God. And so we have much to learn or we have a lot to grow in, our gra- in, in the grace and knowledge of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not knowing something, not understanding something also does a blow to our pride and our arrogance because the opposite happens. The longer you read the Bible, the longer you study the Bible, the more you know. And the more you know, there's an automatic result if you're not walking in humility, that you just become an arrogant person. You just think you know it all. You think you know it all. You think you can do better. You think you're better than someone. And God will have none of that. Jesus came to serve. He came as a, as a humble man, God in human flesh. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, but it's love that edifies. And we need the Old Testament. We need to read through it. Jot it down in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning. What are the things written before Romans? The Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs. Whatever was written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Jot this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is for anyone that would tell you that there's no need for the Old Testament today. Just focus on the New Testament. We're New Testament Christians. Yes, we're, we're New Covenant believers, you bet. We believe in the grace of God, absolutely. You'll never truly come to a full understanding of the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. I mean, really, even those of you that study the book of Revelation, you know that all the types, meanings, and pictures and metaphors are explained to us in the Old Testament. That's where they're rooted. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says... All these things happen to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. Who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. If you're thinking you're standing strong, be careful. For you too may fall into the same sin. All these things happen to them as examples. The Old Testament is examples to us. And we learn from them. Far from being irrelevant and boring, the Old Testament gives us insights on life and God's dealings with man. Too many discount the Old Testament when it's incredibly practical. When you think of it, when it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, where do you think the apostles got their doctrine from? The Old Testament. When they were studying the scriptures, that's all they had at the time. And then they would, of course, add the teachings of Jesus. Then the teachings of Jesus would be written down, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Then Paul would come along. Then James would come along. Then Peter would come along. But when the early church got together, they were studying the fulfillment of the Old Testament as Jesus taught. And that was the foundation. The early church became strong and vibrant in a large part to the studying of the Old Testament. When you read the Scriptures, when you study them, whether it's in the Old or the New, it's important that you read looking for the examples that will teach us important lessons. Paul's telling us not to miss the examples, not to just gloss over them. It's been said, experience is the best teacher. And I have to say that that's true. There's truth to that. Experience is a great teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. So for example, when you're raising your kids, you know, you share your testimony with them at an age-appropriate level because you want them to learn from your example. You do not want them. I'm pretty sure, parents, you would agree with this. You don't want your kids to make the same mistakes you made. Yes or no? Of course. You don't want them going down that path. And so at an age-appropriate level, you're sharing with them. No, man, don't do it. Trust me. Don't do it. Yeah, but why not? That Just trust me. Pain and sorrow await you. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says, and my experience will tell you the Bible is true. You don't need my experience, but God God put you in my house with my experience, so trust me. You don't want to go down that path, and that's what a pastor will do. Say, this is what the Bible says. Just obey the Bible. Well, I don't know. You know, maybe the Bible is so irrelevant. Okay, well, I lived a life disobedient to that, so trust me. It's a painful process. The wages of sin is always death, Death to relationships, death to situations. People lose their jobs because of sin. People lose their integrity because of sin. People lose their friendships, lose their marriages. The rages of sin is always death. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, but I don't know. Well, trust me, I've lived it. My experience can warn you. Don't go that way. Trust me. And then you might even say, well, you turned out okay. Man, first of all, I didn't turn out okay. God is still working in my life. And I still have consequences from my past sin. Still. To this day. And when I say, trust me, I'm not just some guy pounding a pulpit up here. I'm telling you, experience will teach you and it doesn't have to be your experience. You don't have to say, well, I'll test it out and I'll tell you, Ed. Well, you can choose to do that, but I'll tell you already what you're gonna tell me. You're gonna regret it. It's gonna be a painful road. You won't get away with it. The consequences may be different for you, but you won't get away with it. It's been said that experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. Our Father is so good to us that he let other people learn lessons so that we could gain understanding from studying their lives. So when we open up to chapter 25 here and we see Zedekiah or at the end Jehoiachin, these were real men. This is not a book of fairy tales. These were real men living real lives, worshiping a real God. And as we go back to the beginning you of know, 1 Kings, the, when we started in our study in 1 Kings, the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, was one. It was united. King Solomon was David's son, and he was ruling a united kingdom. It was the strongest, the, the epitome of the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel was strongest under Solomon's rule. Yet by the time we finished 1 Kings, the kingdom was divided and ruled over by two wicked kings. Divided into two sections. The northern part of Israel, or the northern part of the nation, made up of ten tribes, was known as Israel. They had about 19 kings, and none of them were good. Now the southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, the known as the kingdom of Judah. They had 20 kings, depending on how you count them, and they had eight good ones. But the end of the history is that Assyria comes and scatters Israel in 726 BC, and we see the downfall finally of Judah here in the last chapter of 2 Kings as Nebuchadnezzar comes in and finally wipes out the city, wipes out the country and takes captive the final people back to Babylon. Yet with the nation of Israel as divided as it was, there's good news but according, because according to other passages, including Ezekiel 37, there would be a united Israel. And on May 14, 1948, Israel is currently in this moment as we're breathing, occupying their land, not divided tribes, but as one people, as the faithfulness of God fulfill his prophecy. And literally, pe- Jewish people are still returning home as I speak. God is doing the work that he promised. So now let's find this final judgment that God brings to Judah, because let me just say this, some of you are under great stress right now, some of you are under a heavy hand of of consequence, some of you are experiencing the consequences of past decisions, And, and let me suggest to you from chapter 25 that sometimes that's just what you need for God to get your attention. You didn't respond to anything else. You didn't respond to the prophets, the messengers that God sent into your life. You didn't respond to the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit for you as believers. You didn't respond to the little consequences that came along the way. You didn't respond to the fact that you made that mistake before and you already know. You you time and just like the nation of Judah, constantly even having good seasons, you know, sometimes you misinterpret. Well, I'm in a good season right now, but you never really did resolve that issue. It's still unresolved. It's not just gonna go away. You can choose to forget it and hide it and press it out of your mind, but it's not going to go away. Things need to be resolved in the Lord with repentance and godly sorrow, and then things just grow when they're not taken care of, not paid attention to. And like Judah, it's just like, okay, you're not going to turn from your idolatry. You're going to follow wicked kings again. Okay, that's it. That's, it's over. You're going to be taken captive, just like I predicted would happen. So notice with me in verse 1 now. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city, verse 4, the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled at night by the way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by the way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. So as Jerusalem is surrounded, there's a fear that grips the people, and a famine takes place. Food becomes scarce, and the end is near. They're beginning to lose everything that they trusted in, their own strength and the resources that were there. King Zedekiah is captured, and he's brought to Babylon. Now this is an interesting, this this verse with King Zedekiah here is a very interesting verse that I want to draw out for you because you will meet people as you talk to them, and you're building the bridge of evangelism with them, and you're talking to them about life. You're talking to them about the absolute source that you use as the final word of authority in your life, the Bible. And no doubt, there will be people that say, well, you know, the Bible's filled with contradictions. And if they study a little bit, they might show you a perceived contradiction, When it comes to King Zedekiah here, this is one of the places that they might show you. But I want to teach you, write this down. Because the next time somebody shows you a... a, some Tao, oh, it's full of contradictions, you can answer this way. Really? Let me show you a contradiction. And pull this out. And you can use the word suppose it, because it's not a contradiction at all. But when you read it, it seems that way. So I'm going to just jot them down, and I'll read you these two verses, okay? The first one is in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 3. And this is what somebody would do. You know, if they're all set up for you, they'd find some, some verse like this one. It says in Jeremiah 34, by the way, Jeremiah's prophesying during this time. So Jeremiah's book, the book of Jeremiah is overlapping with Second Kings at this time. They're happening at the same time chronologically. So Jeremiah says this, And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hands. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon he shall speak with you face to face and you shall go to Babylon. So what does that tell us that is going to Babylon going to see the king with his eyes, right? Jot this down. Ezekiel chapter 12 verse 13. Ezekiel chapter 12 verse 13. I will also spread my net. This is my net. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. I will also spread my net over him. He shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Interesting. So you have a situation here where there is a perceived contradiction. How is it possible that he can see and not see at the same time? And this is all referring to King Zedekiah. By the time we come to King Zedekiah, it happens in his life that he's captured as he's fleeing Jerusalem, and he was brought before the king in Judah. So notice again, it says in verse 5, the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered. So they took the king and brought him to the king in Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then, verse 7, so that's the fulfillment so far. Verse 7, they killed his sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and then took him to Babylon. So his eyes were gorged out and was taken into Babylon exactly, precisely as God predicted you find that people would love to hang on to things in the Bible. And you might even be like reading a scripture here and looking at another scripture and go, I don't know how that's going to work out. Well, even when we don't know how it's going to work out, God will work it out. He will be proven to be 100% accurate. And who would have predicted that his eyes would be gorged out at just the right precise time in order for both of those verses to be fulfilled? powerful. If you're looking for a book, it's not in print anymore, but I think you can get it used. I've used this book for many, many, many years. It's called When Critics Ask by Norman Geisler. When Critics Ask, G-E-I-S-L-E-R. And it is a Bible difficulty book where he addresses, and it's a pretty thick one, he addresses many of the perceived contradictions But the reason I recommend it above all the other ones, and I wish they'd put it back in print, is because not only does he give you the answer, but he helps you think through why. And that's an important thing. Oftentimes as believers, we aren't able to explain to someone why we believe what we believe, and we should be able to do that. We should understand not only what we believe, but why we believe it. Why do we believe the Bible is so important and accurate today and you'll recall in a few studies ago you know i don't know how far back you'd have to go i taught you how to remember four key parts of why the bible is the bible in your hand is an accurate english translation to the very manuscripts that we don't have we only have the very autographs that we don't have we have manuscripts which are copies of copies We have many manuscripts today. Remember, I taught you four things, and I taught you to remember it by thinking of your Bible. And in the back of a Bible, there are maps, right? In most of our Bibles, we have maps. And just remember the word maps, and it it helps you remember three things. We believe the Bible is accurate today because of the evidence of manuscripts, because of the archaeological evidence that we have, the power of predictive prophecy in the Bible, And the S stands for the statistical probability of all of the manuscripts, archaeological evidence, and the predictive prophecy of all that being possible. And we went through that in depth. Um, Maybe if you went to the app and you searched for it, you might be able to find it. If you can't find it, you've got to wait till the next time I teach it but it's somewhere in the Bible, and we have a lot of, somewhere I taught, I forget where I was, but I think actually there's a Bible study, Is why you can trust your Bible. So if you put that in, I think there's one that I titled, Why You Can Trust Your Bible, and we did a couple weeks on it. You need to know why you believe. It's very important, it's very powerful, because most people that, most people that come to you and they say, you know, I know the Bible, you can't trust the Bible. One of the first questions I ask them is simple, have you read it? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, a long time ago. I read it when I was a kid. Well, what part of it can't you trust? Oh, well, I watched this show, and I, well, I had Time Magazine, and I got this email. And, well, why don't you read it, and then come back to me with a real bona fide Bible question. How about this? Why don't you read the Gospel of John? And I will answer any Bible question you have if you just read the Gospel of John. And so now you're prepared. You, may, you, know, if you make that statement. You go, oh, Ed, you can do that. Well, I don't know every answer to everything. I might have to study something. I don't know what they're going to ask. So it's not like I know every answer to everything, and neither do you. But there are so many tools out there that you can find the answer to questions. And, and so if you just tell somebody, you know, you just meet them where they're at and go, well, you know, read, read the Gospel of John. You're opening up to say, okay, I'll probably have to do a little bit of study with whatever question they come back with. But then you're also giving in the Bible and you're making a deal with them, right? And you know that the Gospel of John was written in order that when people read it, they might believe in Jesus Christ. So they agree, I'll answer anything, I'll find an answer for them if they read the Gospel of John. And, you know, they'll have to show me somehow that they read it and say, what did you think of chapter six? What did you, what did you think about how Jesus really, and you begin to meet them where they are. Church, one of the important things, that's why I encourage taking notes, it's not just to be note takers, but statistics say that you remember more when you write it down. And so you're just jotting down what's on your mind. You're just jotting down what stuck, sticks out to you. Jotting down a scripture that you're going to read later or something that really spoke to you. And it's not just so we can be note takers and it's not just so we can look like we're paying attention. The Holy Spirit wants to teach you why. So you can make an impact in this world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some people just need a deeper answer than most people. So be ready. Be ready. You, you can look things up, and you can study. And so get that book. Order it online. I know it's a, if you go to Amazon through their, um, through their used book thing, there they, are copies available, When Critics Ask. And it's a Bible difficulty book. And I didn't even look to see if this was in there. Um, but I'm sure it is. Because this is a popular way people use the Bible to kind of make you feel like, well, maybe it is. Maybe Well, that sounds like a contradiction. And say, no, with a little bit of study, you can come up with an answer. Notice in verse 8 now. Now in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, <clears throat> Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord in the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great men, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So they're destroying the city. They're taking the capital and burning it all down. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. This is, remember, the third deportation. And you recall when we went through this earlier, the first time they took captives, there were some familiar guys that they took. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. So that was in the first time they came. They didn't take everyone, just a few thousand. They came a second time. This is the final time. The captain of the guard, verse 12. They didn't take everyone, but they left a few of the poor in the land as vine dressers and farmers so that Jerusalem didn't become a wilderness. Don't you think there was wisdom from God in that? That they didn't take everyone so Jerusalem would just become a wilderness, a barren wilderness. They left some people there to take care of the land and to work the land. Verse 13, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, the carts, the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans, they broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. <clears throat> they also took away the pots, shovels, trimmers, spoons, and all the bronze utensils which the priest ministered. The fire pans, the basins, the things made of solid gold, solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, and the carts which Solomon made for the house of the Lord, the bronze and all the articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, and the network of pomegranates all around the capital were of all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with the network. Verse 18. The captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon struck them, put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. Then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johananun, the son of Keriah, Sarai, the son of Tanhumath, and the Netophatith, and Zahana, you can look in the mirror and you can not say all these tonight. Practice with your kids. Verse 24. Gedaliah took an oath before them and the men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Which happens to be the absolute, full, complete summary of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, This was Jeremiah's message. You're going to be here a while. You guys study, Bible students, you know they're going to be there for how long? Seventy years. The years that they did not allow Uh, And take the yearly Sabbath. And so the people, small and great, verse 26, captains and armies arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So most of the rest of the chapter, we have the details of Babylon taking Judah captive. In the end, the temple, the palace, the homes were completely burned. All the valuable things were stolen and taken back. Uh, They left the poor to work the land. And most of the people of Judah were taken captive. The city is left in ruins and destroyed. Now remember, Jeremiah was prophesying during this time. When a prophet was sent to the children of Israel, to the nation of Israel, a prophet was sent because they wouldn't listen to the priests. They wouldn't listen to the men that were given responsibility to teach them. And because they wouldn't listen to the priests, God would send a prophet. A prophet's message was always much harder than the priests. It's almost like the the priests would be used to reason with the people biblically, trying to get their eyes back on God in worship. Because the solution to so many of our problems is a simple message from a priest. And I don't mean a Roman Catholic priest. I mean a priest that's sent by God, a man with a spiritual message. Today we would refer to that as a pastor, or a spiritual leader. And the message is simple. The solution to the difficulty in your life is to get back to a life of worship. That's really what it means. And I don't mean singing as much as I mean keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's passionately pursuing Jesus Christ with your life. The answer to the issues in your life is worship. There isn't anything that won't be solved in your life in the moment if you're not in a position of worship. Like when you begin to worship, that's, that's one of the benefits of coming together, isn't it? Because even if it's just for a brief few moments, you're caught up in the heavenly scene. And all the cares of the day are set aside all the worries are captivated by hope. You even begin, if, if, you're, you know, if it's during the song or God speaks a word through a Bible study, you begin to think about heaven. I mean, you're going through a big thing. You got written up at work today or somebody yelled at you or somebody cut you off. And like, you're not thinking about heaven during those times. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I'm not really thinking about heaven. I might think about hell a little bit, but not heaven. You know, in times of difficulty, our eyes are completely off eternal. the the eternal. So God will send a priest in here. Like God will send a pastor, a spiritual man, a spiritual woman to give you a spiritual message. But if you don't receive the easy way, God will send someone to give it to you a little bit harder. And usually the prophets would not only say the same thing that the priest did in the Old Testament, but they'll also give the warning. If you don't do it, it's gonna hurt. It's almost like the priest is, you know, when you have two parents in the home and you got the nice one and the not so nice one, the priest is the nice one. You know, it's like the one that the kids go to when they know they're probably going to get a yes. And the prophet is probably the not so nice one or the one that's the, the, that represents discipline in the home where, you know what? Hey, you didn't listen to your mom? This is the way it is. You didn't listen to your dad? This is the way it is. And so God will send a prophet into your life. I wonder how many times God has sent a prophet in your life and you ignored him and you just dismissed it. Maybe it was a prophetic word in a Bible study. It was a prophetic word from a friend. It was a prophetic text message or email. I mean, not, we're not, some, not talking about somebody sharing their opinion with you. We're not talking about everybody has an opinion. It's, I'm talking about somebody sharing God's opinion with you. This is the word of the Lord unto you. This is what it says. Don't go that way. And I find myself in my own ministry going back and forth between those two offices. Having the privilege of teaching the Bible and being more of an exhorter and an encourager... But if I have to sit down with someone and plead with someone not to sin, it becomes a little more prophetic in their life. It becomes a little stronger. Because if they're gonna go down that road, they're gonna have to go over me. And they're gonna have to go, you know, if God put me in your life, I would hope you expect the truth. Uh, You're not gonna get anything else but the truth. And it's like, you know, what are you even thinking about divorce for? Well, you know, I'm not in love anymore. What kind of nonsense is that? Where did that come from? Not in love anymore. Love is a choice. So you don't want to choose to love anymore. That's your problem. Well, you don't know me. You're Moses. You know, you're such meanie. I'm going. I'm leaving. I don't intend to be mean, but let's just be, just be serious. Maybe it's not for anyone in this room, but like you're out listening right now. You go, I'm not in love anymore. Show me in the Bible where that is. Well, you know, that's how we got married. We were so in love, and now I'm not in love anymore. Well, you just got to learn what it means to serve and sacrifice on behalf of your spouse. It's a new way of living. It's not the way this world operates. You, you guys, you know, that watch movies and romantic comedies. You know a movie's not real. You know that, right? Do you know they actually shoot movies backwards? Most of the time they shoot the end scenes before they do the beginnings, and then they get together in a, in a room, put music to it, cut it all up, and put it together. It's not real. And so the idea of this romanticized view of love... Now, obviously God has put man and woman together in marriage to bring great glory and honor to him and to enjoy one another. And sometimes in marriage, the joy of marriage is choosing to serve and choosing to love a difficult spouse. And so don't let that be caught in your lips, oh, I'm just not in love anymore. Okay, choose to love. Choose to love with the agape love that God loves you. I mean, imagine imagine in your own life right now that if God treated you like that, That he only loves you when you deserve to be loved. There would be a stoppage of love because which one of us deserved to be loved? And so we need to adopt the language of the Bible. Most of the time a pastor can teach you that, but sometimes God will send you a prophet. And you know what they do to prophets? They stone them. (laughs) They stone them. You know, as you're driving around the city, I don't, I don't know, I, I just, I believe this is from the Lord. I want you guys to have a heart and compassion for other churches in our city. There are many churches that run in a governmental system where the people that oversee the pastor can fire him at any time for any reason. And a lot of guys live under that pressure. And I received a text recently from a friend of mine where in another town, another state, that he was sharing with me some of the insights with this pastor that has been put on notice. It's like this pastor's been written up. The pastor came to town. The church was about 100 adults. Uh, Last year represented the largest time ever in the life of this pastor. The church came in that little small town, grew to 800 adults. And God is obviously pouring out his spirit through this man. And because of our mutual friendship uh, with this brother, And I I trust the brother that asked me to pray for him, reach out to him, that this is a man of integrity, a man that loves his church, a man that serves sacrificially. His wife serves sacrificially. His kids serve sacrificially. But last year, so 2017 was the high year. 2018, they dipped a little bit. They went from like 800 adults to maybe 700 adults, something, 750, some dip. And, And so that also dipped in the budget. And... And so the governing elders there, the governing board of of their church, decided to fire the assistant pastor to make up the difference, and then put the senior pastor on notice that if he doesn't grow the church past 800, they're firing him too. Just pray for churches around town. Uh, Not all the churches in our town have the freedom that we've been given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Sometimes they're in churches are governed by men that don't have a walk with the Lord, that aren't spiritual, that... The reality of, and, and by the way, you know, going from 800 to 700, that being a, a reason to fire a pastor, we don't count here, so we would never know. So you can't show up, wait, I think uh, the, it's time for you to start packing because the church has shrank. Wait, you know what? If the church shrank, it's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to love the people that come and love them, and just minister to them. But a lot of pastors don't live that way. So now he's got extra stress. And now he's got to go off and probably looking, I don't know because I haven't spoken to him yet, but he's probably looking on on the internet, you know, findachurchjob.com so that he can provide for his family, so that he can find a place that he can exercise his gifts and his calling. Our church, this church, must remain spiritual. And we're not about the numbers, and we're not about the budget. We're about changed lives. And we believe, listen, we believe that changed lives will take care of all those things. And so we don't count. You know, we estimate, of course, you know, sometimes we estimate and of course we have auditors come through, we have to look at the numbers of what we have, but that's not where we live. We live in the spiritual realm. We minister to people. And so when you drive around, the reason I'm sharing that story with you is when you drive around this city, pray for the churches in our city. I don't know the government and all of them. I'm not telling you what denomination it is because I don't want you to be suspect. I just want you to Pray because this is the people under the care like that get stifled and taken advantage of and they get used and they get burned out and and they get they get mishandled and it breaks my heart it it, it crushes me because sometimes a pastor's prophetic and this is my point sometimes a pastor's prophetic and he gets fired he speaks a strong word to the congregation the congregation doesn't like it and they say we want a new pastor When all the while, God was being merciful to that church. Being merciful to give us the truth. Listen, we need the truth in a day and age where our ears are tingling. You know, we read a verse like that and we go, oh, other people's ears tingling. You don't think your ears don't tingle? You don't think that that the screen time that you have on your phone doesn't make your ears tingle? Some little Facebook ad doesn't get your attention? Something that pops up on YouTube. You were looking at one thing and something pops up on YouTube and that doesn't get your attention. Some little clickbait. You guys understand what the phrase clickbait means? Some headline that gets your attention. All they want is the click because they get paid by click. Check this out. Check this out. You know, you need a prophetic word in your life because your ears were tingle. Listen to these statistics. I was going to post this, but let me share it with you first. There's a new category of people um, that is... That has been named because of social media. And let me see if I can find the picture. Maybe I I can't find it. But I I copied it so that... Oh, I know where it is. Hang with me, all right? I'm going to keep talking. So let me find it because I think it's very important. You guys got to hear this. It's for you tonight. And I'll end up up posting it. But there's this... I'm so sorry. I should have found it beforehand. There's a whole new. They're calling young people now screenagers, not teenagers, but screenagers. And they put the statistics of how many how many kids have a phone and how long they use it and how much it's infiltrated into our uh, into our lives. I can't find it, so I'm going to post it when I get home, and you'll see the statistics. It's alarming. It's alarming how we're being shaped by our culture, how our kids are being shaped by our culture. And so what does God do when a people is shaped by their culture? He sends a prophet. And he says, look, the culture is ruining you. What was it? What was the big sin? Or actually, what were the two big sins in the nation of Israel? One of them was Idolatry, the lack of the true worship of God. The biggest sin that they dealt with was idolatry and just becoming like their culture where there was no distinction. And it's not just a surface outward thing that we dress a certain way or talk a certain way. It is the very manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life to others. That's the distinction. The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. How do you answer that in your life? What does that look like in your life? But instead, there's this pressure to want to be like the culture and to be a part of the culture and to dress like the culture and to act like the culture and to sing like the culture and everything about the culture. And then only one life will soon be passed. And you find out the culture is one big lie. That it's just one big scam That it doesn't fulfill us the way that we thought it would. And idolatry runs rapid. Let me just say this. And we looked at verses 27 through 30 in depth in our last study. We went a little backwards. But remember we learned in the 37th year of captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him, gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed him from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So remember, we looked at this as a beautiful picture of forgiveness. You need to listen to that Bible study, absorb it, receive it. You can still email me. I'll send you the links I mentioned last time. But we learn this, not only was he released, but we learn what forgiveness does. Brought out, comforted, exalted, clothed, favored, and his future was secure. That's the greatest gift that God has given to us in our lives is the forgiveness of our sins. Taking the burden away, his love and grace and mercy. Now, as we close Second Kings, here's the final word. No nation, no home, no family, no church will rise above its worship of God. That is the capacity. The capacity of our strength is our worship. And the wicked sin of idolatry always divides and destroys. Conformity is a weakness spiritually. The Bible tells us not to be conformed to this world but be transformed. Transformation is a sign of spiritual maturity. Just conforming to what's around us is immaturity spiritually. It's always weakness. The fear of man will always lead, and I have this in, in capital letters, the fear of man will always lead you away from God into compromise, a place of weakness, and ultimately sin. And you know, God is looking for that man, looking for that woman who will stand strong in the gap for God, Dedicated, committed, rising above the temptations, staying strong with their eyes on the prize, not conformed to this world, being transformed by, the, transformed by the renewing of our mind. And here is a guide to look in your life. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. I'm going to read it to you in a new living, but you can follow with me in whatever translation you have. James chapter 4, verse 4. A lot of times the question comes up is I don't know what's from God or what's from this world. You know, because a lot of times the the definition is, well, dress this way, do this, and, you know, that's the world, and worldliness is... Here's here's God's definition, a good place to start, of what's from heaven and what's from the earth. And I think you'll be surprised on some of the things that James declares here. James chapter 4, verse 4. He starts out with real encouraging words. You adulterers, spiritually, spiritual idolatry. He's speaking to a people idolatrous. Don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again that if your aim is to enjoy this world, you can't be a friend of God. What do you think the Scripture means when they say that the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed within us, jealously longs for us to be faithful? He gives us more and more strength to stand against such evil desires. As the Scriptures say, God sets himself against the proud but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw close to God, and God will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, hypocrites. Let there be tears for the wrong things you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be Sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy when you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him. He will lift you up and give you honor. He will lift you up and give you honor. Humble yourself, repent, admit. Stop playing around with the world. Make a decision to dedicate yourself to the Lord. Now go back to chapter three and here's the place where you're going to be able to tell the difference, what's from God and what's not from God. Who is wise in understanding? Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom doesn't descend from above, but is, what does your Bible say in the New King James? Earthly. It's from the earth. It's a worldly thing. It's earthly, sensual. And notice, he puts the root of it at what? Demonic. The spirit behind this world system is demonic. How do we know that? Because the devil has come except to steal, kill, and destroy. James says, in spite, this is dem- demonic stuff. I wonder if you've ever considered the stuff you're into as believers in Jesus Christ is actually demonic. It has a demonic influence behind it. It says, for where envy, verse 16, and self-seeking exists, confusion, right? God's not the author of confusion. Confusion comes from envy, self-seeking, demonic, worldly, earthly influences. And every evil thing will be there. But notice, the wisdom that's from above, this is, you know, it's from God when it's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let the nation of Israel being divided into Israel and Judah be a warning to us. There's been a lot of warnings throughout our study, all from the very beginning of 1 Samuel. Watching their lives, seeing those that sought the Lord were blessed. Those that didn't seek the Lord were not blessed those that live for God were blessed and so were all the people around them and those that didn't weren't. It's so vital to stay in that abiding position, resting, trusting, and obeying Jesus Christ, leaving the results to him. And so as you leave here today, just knowing that even pastors and leaders are under great stress, even in our own church, just going through stuff. and, and, And yet, when some of the guys around town, they're They're coming into the pulpit worried about how they're going to be treated, whether they're going to have a job. And that's painful to me. The calling of God being reduced to a place of, of, man, if the leadership likes you, you stick around. Sometimes God sends a church a prophet. And prophets, they get stoned. Not stoned like, you know, stoned with rocks. They get stoned, man. They get beat up. They get run out. I wonder if god sent you a prophet recently that you've run away i mean a prophet that's verifiable not someone that's given false prophecies and i'm not talking about that somebody given their own opinions i mean someone that bona fide opinion of god from his word i mean right here the difference was was it filled with mercy and good fruits without partiality without hypocrisy like that's wisdom from above and so listen to the prophets god sends into your life yeah listen to the pastors the priests you know the spiritual men but also listen to the prophets. Because Jeremiah is another example. You look at Jeremiah's life, he's known as the weeping prophet because all they did was beat him up and, and resist him and not listen to him. And at the end of Jeremiah's uh, ministry, you know, those that study such things would come to the conclusion that he had zero converts. And in this you know, corporate mindset world of the church today, we'd, I, we'd say Jeremiah was a failure. No converts. What kind of prophet are you? You'd expect somebody would listen to you, and yet they'd run Jeremiah out of town. But Jeremiah, before before God, he's not a failure. He was a success. He did exactly what God told him to do. He did exactly, as a matter of fact, he was called to a more difficult um, ministry that he had to keep going, even though he had no converts, even though nobody listened to him, even though Nebuchadnezzar came, and sack the city just like he, was, like he was predicted to fulfill prophecy. And so as we close Second Kings, just remember it can happen to us. We can get our eyes off of God. We can get involved in nonsense. We could be divisive. We can just walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. And it will just be damage and destruction, opening ourselves up to all kinds of demonic influence. And no wonder the church doesn't turn the world upside down when we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. No wonder. And you know, you're going to be faced with trials and temptations. You're going to be faced with difficulties. You're going to go through things. They're all part of the process of growing you up. Changing the world is not our responsibility, it's God's responsibility. It's His responsibility. He knows more than we do the things that are going on. But it's our privilege. It's God's responsibility, but it's our privilege to obey God when He gives us the great commission, not the great suggestion. Oh, if you want to get involved in the things of God, you can if you want. No way. You've been enlisted into God's army. And so go full with the giftings and the talents and the personalities that God has given you to reach people in the name of Jesus Christ. So we can finish well, right? Get right through the finish line and finish well. So Father, we do pray for that brother in the other state. I know his story's repeated over and over again. Would you encourage him? Because even in the trials, Lord, you're going to use that. Um, and just knowing that prophets, they end up getting stoned and run out of town. Um, and, and these other measurements and other things that, that are used, Lord, I, I understand the reality of, of numbers. I get it, Lord, but it's not about the numbers. It's about faithfulness and abiding, resting. It's about responding to the leading of your Holy Spirit. It's about loving the people that are in front of us. So I just pray, God, for pastors under great stress right now, and I know our Bible study goes all around the country, so just wherever they are, Lord, would you encourage, pour out a fresh anointing on the pastor, his wife. Pour out a fresh work on his kids, his grandkids. All the things he has to withstand, all the things he's got to deal with. We kind of joke about complaints and stuff, but it's real. It's real. And it can weigh on a pastor. It can weigh on a leadership. We just pray for the guys and leaders and pastors in our church that, that give and give and give, and, and they're just those times where people just don't give. They don't give in return. They, they don't cut slack. They don't, they're not patient. They're not kind. Lord, forgive us for not being kind to one another, not patient with one another, not praying for one another. Forgive us when we walk onto the property of a church saying, what can they do for me? Instead of being so grateful of what you've done for us that We find ourselves in a place of giving, Lord, and just serving and loving you. Loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Loving our husbands, Lord. I know that that word about falling out of love pricked a heart tonight. They're probably mad at me, Lord, but I pray that they wouldn't be. I pray that they would ask you for your agape love. That they've come to an impossibility. They've reached a personal limit. But you never called them to love in emotion. You called them to love by choice. So would you just comfort me? And I know some listening, um, you know, they, they've, they've actually had that said to them, so they're hurting. and They're having to deal with the... Uh, and, and it's just like, man, it's, if it wasn't for you, Lord, I don't know how we'd make it. You're just so kind and good, and you, you heal us, and you help us, and you strengthen us. And we want to be a light in our community, God. We want to, we want to be used by you. We want to see our kids grow up to know you and love you and serve you, and, and, and we want to see heaven filled, God. So let this little church be used to the capacity, Lord, beyond our abilities so that anything that takes place, only you would get the glory. Only you would get the attention. It wouldn't be put on man and it wouldn't be put on a movement and it wouldn't be put on a strategy or a program, but that you would get all the glory for the great things you have done. If you add, then praise the Lord. And if you subtract, then you, we praise the Lord. No matter good or bad, big or small, much or less, we praise the Lord. And we ask you to pour out abundance of your spirit, Lord, as we trust you with our lives, we trust you with our homes, with our own personal finances, with our families, with our kids, with our grandkids. We trust you. And until you bring it to pass, we will trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.